Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Most interesting for health and fitness pros, we've turned the lessons learned coaching over 200,000 clients into a complete nutrition and health coaching system called the Precision Nutrition Certification. It's the industry's most recognized career-changing coaching system anywhere. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will coach you on growing your business, helping more people, and becoming a better coach. We'll help you become more than a personal trainer, strength coach, or nutritionist. We'll help you become the complete fitness professional. So let's get started. We have a very short amount of time together to talk about uh, a subject that can be very vast. And that is, uh, you know, talking about program design, individualized programs and writing programs for clients. And so what I wanted to do in, in uh, trying to put together uh, my time with you was, was not necessarily go through every little detail that goes into writing a program, which you know, you could really talk and talk and talk for days and, and weeks about and, and argue different approaches, different models. What would you do in this case? What would you do in that case? What I thought rather would be more, uh, have more of an impact would be to try and share with you a perspective on, on what really writing a program is and uh, how you want to approach it and how, more importantly, how you want to approach your development as a professional as it relates to writing these programs. Um, and so from that perspective, um, I, I hope that everybody leaves here today uh, with a little bit of a, of a new idea on things that they may want to consider uh, in their own development and um, in their uh, philosophy for writing these programs. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is this concept of epistemology. Does anybody know what epistemology is? Can you show of hands? Yeah. So there's a few people who've heard this, this term before, but epistemology is, is really the study of how you know what you know, okay? And how you come into contact with, with ultimately knowledge that you have in your field. And, and that's really what our field is about. It's about the acquisition of knowledge and then using that knowledge to create a service. And so, you know, in this model of epistemology, we really have truth, belief, and knowledge. So we have this, this concept, and this is the way that I'll, I'll really explain it, is, you know, in my model, we have these four different ways of coming into to knowledge or to, to gain information. Uh, the first is evidence-based, and we're all familiar with this. this these are um, research studies, or these are really structured ways of objectively showing relationships uh, and then forming conclusions about those relationships. And without a question, that is, is potentially the most important uh, method of, of coming into knowledge. And when I say that, I mean that it's everybody's responsibility to know the evidence-based literature and to try and consider that in our practice. Um, and also, we have logical information, which also goes hand in hand with research. But it's very important for us, in many cases, even if there aren't peer-reviewed studies, to be able to use logic and deductive reasoning and problem-solving skills to come into conclusion about what we're doing. So in other words, uh, you know, not just taking something and applying it because somebody said that we should do it, but doing it because it really makes sense and that you've thought through it. 
uh, experiential is, uh, wisdom is another way of coming into, uh, into knowledge. And, you know, people that have their own experiences, it's very important to consider the experiences that you're having and not just necessarily write them off because it doesn't fit with a certain model. So if, if somebody came as a strength and conditioning coach and said, look, this is how you have to practice. These are the things you have to do. But your experiences uh, aren't necessarily aligning with that. It's important to consider that as you form your philosophies. And also traditional uh, information. And so very often uh, when things are common practice, if we don't necessarily have experience with that ourselves, we can trust other people who have been doing these practices for a, a long period of time or somebody that might have credibility that would lend us you know, knowledge or lend us some of their own experiences. And so if we buy into that, that's really a traditional way of thinking. And the whole perspective, and, and this is one of the reasons why this is one of the first slides, is because it really represents the theme of the entire presentation, is that we have to take information from all of these places. So there are people in our industries that believe that if something isn't peer-reviewed, then it doesn't count. And so you could never actually utilize something in your practice unless there is really hard evidence behind it. And you're not necessarily going to be able to perform at the best of your abilities and apply the best knowledge that's out there. Certainly in the situation where you're dealing with competitive advantages, or sorry, competitive athletes, you're never going to win if you're waiting for somebody else to write about what they were doing 10 years ago. So you have to start to consider what else might be out there. Okay, and at the other side of the spectrum, you know, I, I use my mom as an example because I, I love her to death, but she, she gives me a call every once in a while and says, you know, you really should start to think about doing this because I saw it on Oprah. Or she might say, you know, look, I read this, you know, in the newspaper, you know, and they're saying that, you know, da 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 And so, you know, there is that side of it that tends to get a bad rap in our community because we think, well, where's the evidence? You know, or somebody might come in with a really great idea and say, look, I'm working with this athlete. This was the, uh, the observation that I had. I tried this. These are the results we're getting. And somebody might put a wall up and say, you know what? I don't buy it. Show me the evidence. And so, um, you know, you can't really be too far on one side of the spectrum. And you can't be too far on the other side of the spectrum. You have to be open-minded. Um, we have to find ways to determine how things fit with us in terms of knowledge and information. Uh, but we also have to be objective at the same time. So what is a program? So in my opinion, a program is a solution to a problem. And if you went around the room, you'd probably come up with a million different uh, definitions of what a program really is. But ultimately, somebody's coming to you with a problem. Even if everything's going well and they want to improve what they're doing, whether they want to improve their body composition or improve their athletic performance, ultimately the problem is that they're not good enough or they're at a place where they feel is, is maybe inadequate uh, in terms of their standards. So that's really what we're trying to do, is we're trying to sit back and create a solution to that problem. What is the basis for a program design? So there are a variety of types of ways to come into, into um, what you determine as, as your program. And how many people here, just a show of hands, have a model that they work with or a framework that they work with to write a program? Okay, you should. You should. You should have a framework that you really work from. That being said, you don't want all your programs ultimately to be the same. And if I went around to the people that I know in the industry and asked them, you know, if you took 20 programs that you wrote last year, how many of them are very similar? Most people, embarrassing, will say, you know what? Yeah, most of my programs are very, very similar. And sometimes you can get caught into doing that. And this is really what I want to talk to you about is, is about how to get away from your own personal bias when you're writing programs.
And so the first thing in, in your program design is really the assessment, and these are problem-solving skills. So this is probably the most important aspect of writing a program, is what are you doing to assess the individual and come up with a bit of a framework to work from? And so creating the solution, really what it boils down to, I'm a big believer in this, and I know many other people in the room, and John has used this word in the past, uh, and I really, really like it, it's, it's limiting factors. And so the limiting factors philosophy is that success can only be achieved by overcoming limiting factors to success. So if you don't really understand what the limiting factors are, or if you don't properly investigate those factors, or you make bad assumptions about what those factors are, you're going to fail in writing a program or creating a solution for that individual. And I use this concept of exploration, comparison, and differentiation, which essentially means that in order to really understand limiting factors, you have to compare people to one another. So if I have an athlete, okay, who's perhaps a professional hockey player, I want to compare that athlete to other players to find out exactly where they are relative to their deficiencies. Okay, so we have to be very specific in what we do. And obviously, you know, there are different types of body types. Here we have a photo of a gymnast, a high jumper, and a trampolinist who are all Olympic athletes. And clearly, their bodies are all different. So they're, they're going to respond to stimuli differently, okay? Some have different, you know, if you look at the hormone profiles of these athletes, I'm sure they would all be very different. If you look at the way they move biomechanically, they're all different. You look at their genetics, okay, there are significant differences in the way that anatomically they are created. And so they're all going to respond differently to different stimuli. So you can never really have one recipe that applies to everybody. So I'm going to go through a couple of case studies and I'm going to give you an example of ways in which um, you really have to think outside the box to come into contact with the right solution that you're looking for. So case study number one. So these, these are actual cases of people that, um, in this case, it was, uh, it was a, a lady who was uh, in her mid-30s, and uh, she was working with a colleague of mine who came to me and said, look, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can help me sort through this. I'm not really sure what's going on. So she's female, she's 35 years old, she's 5'4", 165 pounds, she has 28% body fat. Her goal is to get down to 14% body fat, so that equals a loss of about 23 pounds of fat, or a loss of 14%. So she's a yoga teacher, she teaches 10 to 12 hours a day, also managed a studio, but had no traditional workout regime. Okay, so daily consumption worked out to be around 1,800 calories a day. Nutritional choices were very strong. So in this case, this person was a vegetarian. Um, they were familiar with doing blood work to find out what type of supplementation they should be having. Um, very, very astute in terms of uh, the ingredients that they put into, the, into her food. And so really what happened in the initial perspective that took place was, you know, this colleague of mine said, okay, well, the food choices are probably not a limiting factor because they're very strong in their choices. Um, so it's likely to be activity level relative to consumption. And many of you may take the same approach. You may think, okay, well, here's somebody who isn't training, doesn't have any structured workout regime, eats well, but has all this added weight. So it's very simple. I'm going to implement a, a very strong and aggressive workout regime. Uh, they're going to do some resistance training, they're going to do some cardio, we're going to do it five days a week because she wants to lose a ton of weight. In this case, she was trying to get ready for a wedding. And so the plan was to increase metabolic activity, maintain and support lean mass through, mass through the resistance training program that she was on, and then the approach from a supplemental perspective is going to be thermogenic. We want her to burn more calories. And so what happened? The results after six weeks of training, five days a week, now this person was lifting, doing cardio, aerobic and anaerobic circuit work five days a week for six weeks and it was somebody who had never really had a workout program before. How many people would think that that would lead to some sort of weight loss? You would think, right? 
okay? Body fat increased 4%, okay? And she gained weight. She gained two pounds of weight after that. So what happened? It was an error in interpreting limiting factors, okay? In this case, my, my colleague made the assumption, okay, that there was a limitation in uh, metabolic activity that was causing her weight gain, okay, that that was the problem, okay, but it was a bad assumption. The real issue was an excessive sympathetic neural activity, okay, and this is very common, okay, so, you know, without going into too much detail to take too much time, we have our parasympathetic and our sympathetic divisions of the autonomic nervous system, and your parasympathetic system is, is associated with, um, with essentially homeostasis. So it slows your heart rate down, it's associated with rest and recovery, adaptation, all your adaptive responses take place in this aspect of your autonomic nervous system. And uh, it also um, influences the vagus nerve which controls uh, different types of gut secretions and absorption of nutrients. Okay, the sympathetic system is what increases your heart rate and essentially creates the activation of your central nervous system um, or you know any kind of sort of norepinephrine neurotransmitter that's going to increase your heart rate and create that, uh, that stress uh, type response. And so in this case, she was overly driven in her sympathetic system, okay? So she was a person managing a studio, working 10 to 12 hours a day, had a ton of stress, poor sleep, so she wasn't absorbing a lot of the nutrients that she was getting into her system, and she, she probably wasn't creating a lot of hormone. So she had very little adaptive uh, response to what she was doing, and as a result, her hormones started to decline. She had tons of cortisol in her system because her stress hormones were really high, and her anabolic environment was low, and her catabolic envir environment was very high. And so this is kind of what happens with your brain when you start to get stressed. We create what are called beta waves. So we start to think about things that are happening. We perceive that as a stress and we have a response. And the beta activity, which are these very fast sort of brain-like activities, are associated with a sympathetic action. So just by sitting here, if you were to perceive some kind of stress or to think about something at work that was very stressful to you, you would have a sympathetic response. So it's possible for some people that through their jobs, they're constantly activated through the sympathetic nervous system. Really where we want to be is, is in alpha wave activity, which is where you're sort of relaxed uh, and you're conscious and you're alert, um, but your system isn't really activating at a high level through that sympathetic system. So it ends up being about a 60% sympathetic, 40% parasympathetic balance at rest is really ideal. And people that are much higher than that, they can produce tons of cortisol and they can have you know, lots of uh, cortisol arrhythmia, uh, which uh, allows you to uh, negatively impact your, your sleep cycle at night. And there is some science behind this. So this is a study in 2012 by Messina et al. Autonomic neuroscience, okay, enhanced parasympathetic activity of sportive women is paradoxically associated to enhance resting energy expenditure. So what they did was they studied basketball players and they found out that the athletes who had the highest parasympathetic uh, response actually had the highest resting energy expenditure. So, you know, it is a little bit counterintuitive in that your parasympathetic system is creating hormone levels that are anabolic that are allowing you to have a much better resting energy expenditure. Even though your heart rate is increased and you've got this activation response, if hormonally you become declined from that, then you're going to have a decreased resting energy expenditure. So when you see people that are very active and, and they barely sleep at night and they're burning lots of energy, you may think that they're burning lots of energy, but a lot of times they're burning it from a dead battery. So they're spinning their wheels and they're not actually creating a ton of uh, energy expenditure during the day. 
Okay, and there are also, you know, that's from an academic perspective. There are also books out there that you can access to learn about anabolic hormones and the relationship to the autonomic nervous system. Okay, and this is what hypersympathetic activity does. Decreased nutrient absorption, decreased quality and quantity of sleep, decreased adaptive response to training, decreased cerebellar function. So beta waves actually inhibit function of the cerebellum, which controls multiplanar movements. It has a ton of influence on muscle tone. It has influence on, um, on how your body moves and adapts to exercise. Decreased anabolic hormones, increased catabolic hormones, increased body fat, and decreased lean mass. Okay, so restoring balance, what you really want to do is you want to have, uh, from an aerobic perspective, if you're doing some, some cardiovascular training, you want to have low to moderate volume and, and low to moderate intensity, okay? That's how you fix this. If you go high, you're going to create that alarm response, okay? This, an individual with elevated cortisol uh, levels like that in that hypersympathetic state is probably not going to produce glucose very well. They're going to have a lot of insulin sensitivities, and so it's important not to try and exhaust them during the training, but actually approach it at a very moderate level, okay? From an anaerobic perspective, what you want is low volume, high intensity. So what you actually are trying to do is you're trying to, to um, modulate the sympathetics. You're trying to turn them off because they're activating all the time. So from a lifting perspective, you actually want to give them some load okay, to stimulate the sympathetic system and then get it to try and relax. And there's different ways to modulate it. So through exercise, low volume, high intensity training, okay, multiplanar. Okay, which is to activate the cerebellum. So getting back to uh, that alpha wave connection with the cerebellum, we're trying to engage them in a variety of different types of real life activities, okay, which increases a cerebellar response. Okay. To improve the adaptive response after training, there's certain types of music, classical music, for example, that can calm your nervous system. Uh, meditation is very good. It's been associated also with alpha wave production and breathing. You know, just deep breathing is actually one of the best ways and highly documented to increase a parasympathetic response and to attenuate the sympathetics. There's also a number of technologies out there. Believe it or not, when you're trying to modulate the sympathetics, what you want to do is stimulate the sympathetics at an extremely high level that the body can't take for a very short period of time and then essentially just allow that modulation to kick in and increase parasympathetic response. You can track this with a technology called heart rate variability, uh, which basically just looks at that exact uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic response. But one way to do it is, is intermittent hypo hypoxia. So there are technologies uh, like EWAT training and different types of, um, of methods to actually take away somebody's oxygen as they're training, and there's an increase in that sympathetic activation, and then you deliver oxygen immediately back into their system to allow the sympathetics to, to attenuate. Um, cryotherapy is another one. Cryotherapy um, is, is a, um, a technology where you go into essentially a cold sauna, which is minus 130 degrees Celsius or below, and you expose your body to that for three minutes. And by doing that, of course, you have an, an, a very intense sympathetic reaction for three minutes. But after modulating the sympathetics, you have a very a, a significant increase in parasympathetic response. And I've, I've done this with a few different people and actually seen using heart rate variability, very successful changes with this. Heat therapy is another way to do it. Frequency specific microcurrent is a technology that also can help to balance the autonomics. Compression therapy actually helps. So there's different types of compression tools. Normatec MVP is one that actually has an impact on the ANS. Um, Neurofeedback and biofeedback are also great tools that help somebody learn a little bit about how they feel during those types of responses so they can control a little bit better. 
Okay, so, so what was really happening, we'll get to this in the end, but what was really happening here is that there was this whole world of other possibilities that were happening with this individual, but you know, my colleague was so focused on what had worked with other people that they wanted to take that solution and try to reinforce that with this new person instead of having an open mind. Okay, case study number two. So in this case, we had a professional hockey player, okay, who's an offensive forward, needed to improve skating ability, okay? So he shows up, and again, this is another colleague of mine that he was working with, and he says, look, I want to get faster. So this happens all the time in hockey, okay? So the initial perspective was that we needed to improve power and acceleration, okay? So we're going to do some squats, we're going to do some Olympic lifts, some squat jumps, some box jumps, some lunge jumps. We wanted to improve foot speed, so we're doing some short sprints, some ladder work, some quick hops. Okay, results after 12 week of training in the offseason feels explosive but not able to generate any additional offensive chances. No functional improvements in skating ability after a significant time spent training. This happens all the time. Okay, in fact, this is the standard in our industry that people are training and working hard but not really getting any kind of measurable or noticeable results in their performance field, okay, or specifically with team sport athletes. So what happened? Again, there was an error in interpreting limiting factors. The real issue was a lack of biomechanical and vestibular motor efficiency. So if somebody comes and says, I want to get faster, how do you know that the limiting factor is that they're not explosive enough? You really don't. Until you really understand why it is that their speed isn't better and what specifically those limiting factors are for that athlete, you cannot create a positive solution. So, so these are a couple of things that are related to skating that you might not have known about. Vertical movement during acceleration is a limiting factor in skating in both forward and lateral acceleration. So when you move upwards, okay, when you're trying to accelerate on the ice, that's actually a limiting factor. That slows you down. Okay, the game of hockey is all about space and time. So what we're trying to do is create separation or create distance between ourselves and somebody who's essentially trying to, to, uh, to take away your availability on the ice. And so a lot of times, one of the limiting factors if somebody goes to cross their feet or somebody gets low and tries to push is that their push is forcing them to come up. And that is actually something that slows you down. So if that's actually what's slowing you down and preventing you from skating well, what do you think Olympic lifting and squats and squat jumps and a tons of vertical plyometrics are going to do? They're going to actually increase your propensity to want to do that. So you're actually empowering them to get worse. Okay, anterior center pressure is a limiting factor during skating and leads to limitations in blade contact, force contribution from the hip, balance and stability during transitional movements. So the actual position of your feet or your base of support where you're creating the pressure has a lot to do with how you transition from one movement to the other. If I'm on my toe and I try to cross my feet or I try to pivot, then I'm actually losing blade on the ice. What also happens when you're on the toes, you actually lose action of the hip. In order to be fully active, okay, through the muscles surrounding the hip, specifically the glute maximus, and to create very strong and powerful propulsive forces, you have to be in a dorsiflex position and you have to have a center of pressure on your feet that's towards the middle. And in order, if you're not loaded there, then that could create a problem. So if this athlete's on their toe too much, that could be a limiting factor. So what happens if they're doing ladder drills five days a week and they're on their toe during the ladder drills? What are you doing? You're actually empowering them to get worse. Positive lean angles okay, are required for triple joint extension during the propulsive phase of the stride. Ankle dorsiflexion and the efficiency of the vestibulospinal reflex are critical to maintain these angles. So leaning 
becomes very important for acceleration on the ice. So as I start to lean to the left and lean to the right, there are these vestibulospinal reflexes that my body is helping to control my balance and to allow me to move very freely without creating tension. Okay, and they're very, very important. And so those lean angles need to be as close to 30% as possible as we're accelerating forward, side, and to side. Okay, here's a picture of a lean angle. So essentially, if you were to draw a, uh, a line between the skate and the center of the body, okay, which is the base of support and the center of mass, you're creating a very close to a 30 degree angle. So if a lot of the extra, so if this is the problem, and this is a huge problem in hockey, is that a lot of people when they cross their feet or they accelerate, they're very upright, so they don't have very good lean angles and acceleration angles. If this is the problem, then it's quite possible then doing a lot of static weightlifting, which actually forces you to be in an upright position without any real leaning, can create an adaptive response that's gonna reinforce your problem. So this is, uh, Sidney Crosby doing a drill. So this is a crossover drill. But as you can see, he's trying to lean on his right side. And so this is an incline, a hill incline that's at 30 degrees. So we found a hill that's at exactly 30 degrees. And what he's trying to do is lean in on that inside. And so there's a couple of other examples. But in this case, I would show you an example of a, of a sled push or doing a little crossover bound on a hill that forces you to really create a counter leaning position to maintain those lean angles. And in this case, this is just a lateral bound, which is forcing him to counter lean onto the inside leg. And it's, it's actually a, a case that I've gone through with Sydney and a number of other athletes where this factor alone contributed to a decreased a percentage of success uh, for plays with speed because they weren't counter leaning properly and they weren't maintaining the energy that they're creating on the ice and delivering it in the right way to create space and time for themselves. So, so what's really the lesson here? Every training method has a consequence in a variety of physiological systems. Okay, Biking for aerobic fitness has a biomechanical and neurological consequence. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to lift and, and train biomechanically, but then for aerobic fitness, I'm going to ride the bike. Because when you're riding the bike, you may be shortening your hip flexors, or you may be creating specific biomechanical adaptations that are taking away from other areas. Okay, And there's been tons of research about developing maximal strength and max power, and the, the inability to do that in an environment where you're doing it with concurrent uh, aerobic exercise. And that is because you cannot isolate one system or divide all of our systems into five or six or seven different segments and then train them one at a time without each activity influencing the next. So that's a very important principle to think about. Okay, training exercises impact skating technique through neuromuscular, vestibular, neurological, and biomechanical adaptive responses. So when we're training exercises, if we're doing a squat or we're doing a lift, we wanna be very cautious about the amount of volume in each one of those activities that we're applying relative to the goal set of the individual. So if the main goal of the individual is to improve some of those vestibular abilities, you may not wanna do a ton of static weightlifting uh, because they're increasing the adaptive response in exactly what you don't want. Okay, every training method has a consequence in a variety of physiological systems. I say that again just, just to try and remember that, okay? Functional human movement is 3D, multi-joint, multi-plane, and requires the integration of numerous systems. Stimuli of an individual joint, muscle, or sub-movement has limited transferability, okay? Our bodies move in 3D, and if you want something to transfer into real life, you have to make it real life, especially in a neurological context. Okay, the mechanics, the tempo, and the neurological environment of what you're trying to do, okay, has to be duplicated in order to have some kind of transfer of something that you're working on. So to really conclude and to wrap up here, 
Don't let your philosophy become your personal bias. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different personal bias. If we're a sprint coach, we may have a personal bias towards some of the sprinting applications to training. If we're a weightlifting background, we may have some bias about that. What we want to try to do is we want to try to eliminate that personal bias so that we can be more objective. Okay. So the way that these, in these two cases, the reason why we had poor assumptions, okay, and, and a lot of people will say this, well, I, I didn't know that the ANS had such a specific influence on body fat, and I didn't know the kinematics of dynamic skating. But there's no book that really exists that's going to tell you this. There's no program you can take, no course. There's no one that you can meet that's going to give you all the answers. So you have to put yourself in the mindset to want to ask those questions all the time. Exploration, comparison, and inquisition. You want to compare people. You want to ask questions. You got to be constantly trying to open yourself to find new ideas. Okay? And this guy was a pretty smart guy. He said, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. And that was by Socrates. Okay, in order to have an open mind, you have to eliminate your own personal bias and bias is eliminated by objectivity. So don't always assume that you're right either. And this happens a ton in our field where we do something, someone's happy or they have a relatively good result and we say, oh, I did that. You know, I did this system and it was very good. And that person had success. You want to try to measure as much as possible the results of your work to further try to improve what you're doing, especially your philosophies. And try to be a lifelong student, not a guru. Okay? It's very easy in our world with all of our ambitions to want to, to wanna position ourselves as gurus because we have people's trust and we get positive reinforcement by people you know, having a lot of faith in what we do. But we really want to remove ourselves from that seat as much as we possibly can to become students and enter into environments where we can learn and just completely open ourselves to the information that's out there. And that's it. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. For more information about how to become the complete fitness professional yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and coaching resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.